Well, so good to see you this morning. Really glad that you chose to be with us here at Cherrydale. It's the time in our service when we attempt to orient our hearts to generosity and the mission of God that extends beyond the walls of this church. So I'm going to allow the ushers to come as we collect our weekly giving here at the church at Cherrydale. I recognize that many of you give online, so as the plates pass this morning, would you use that as an opportunity to turn your heart to prayer, to pray that God would bless the investment of this church as we attempt to give of ourselves to his mission here and literally around the world. And it's to that mission here in Greenville that I want to press us uh, just by way of announcement this morning. Coming up in just a few weeks on August the 5th, the first Sunday night in the month of August, we're going to relocate our, week, our monthly family meeting to the Crestwood Apartments, which are immediately behind the facility here. This is an effort for us to press ourselves to get out of our comfort zones and to invest in the community where God's placed us. By God's grace, this is already happening as kids from those apartments are coming to basketball camps as we've been able to do some block parties there. But on that night, we're going to relocate family meeting and set up some bounce houses and give some back-to-school backpacks to the kids with school supplies in them. And I want to encourage you to be a part. And by be a part, I don't mean passively be a part, but I mean actively be a part. You can jump on our website and find a link to indicate that you would like to serve that night, but perhaps even more importantly than signing up to serve is that you're there present and awaiting God to give you opportunities to engage with people who are far from him and far from his church. This is the motive behind us doing it. It's just give, to, give backpacks. Anybody can do that. It doesn't take a church to do that. What we're wanting to do is leverage it for gospel opportunities and conversation. So go ahead and mark that on your calendar. Make plans to be with us as you, along with myself, as we all need to raise the temperature of our missionary posture in the places that God has us. And that really orients us to our topic this morning as we jump back in to our teaching series in the book of Nehemiah. If you have a copy of God's Word, let me invite you to open with me to the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah chapter 2. I believe I've said in sermons before that if I have a guilty pleasure when it comes to passing, my, passing time, which I've had a bit of time to do recently, we over seven weeks drove 9,184 miles. Yes, I counted them. Uh, 9,184 miles, the six of us in a minivan going cross country. And during that time, I often uh, put some earbuds in and listened to true crime podcasts. That's my guilty pleasure. I like it. It's fun. Uh, I like the kind of whodunit mystery, what's going to happen. And uh, I kind of geek out on the stories. But I'll be honest with you, I've listened to a few of these true crime podcasts, you know, that go to episode 39. And for the first four episodes, I'm like really intrigued by the story. Are they going to find out who did this thing, right? Where's the evidence going to point? But I'm a little bit let down with my true crime podcast recently because we get to episode 39 and Homeboy says, nah, we, we really don't know what happened, Right. I mean, the conclusion isn't any more advanced. I mean, we got a lot of evidence, we got a lot of stuff, we got a lot of intrigue, we've wasted a lot of hours of my brain time. But at the end of the day, he's invested, this most recent one, he's invested two years of his life 
capturing the stories of various individuals related to, the, to a murder of an individual and come to the conclusion that he doesn't really know much more than when he started. I ended the final episode of this podcast think, really actually feeling sorry for the guy who captured the story. Dude, you spent two years of your life doing this? And then you turn the mirror to yourself and you think that's often what our lives feel like, doesn't it? It's like things happen, we invest, but then we get to the end of some stretch of time and we look back like, did I actually accomplish anything? Like, is anything of significance moving? Does my life matter? Is anything listening or responding? One of the ways we pass those 9,184 miles is the classic game, Hey Cow. You guys familiar with Hey Cow? This is great entertainment for kids in the car. You roll down your windows, you're driving through Texas, you see fields of cows on either side, and you yell out the window, Hey Cow! And you get points for the number of cows who turn and look at you, right? This is amazing. My kids for hours were entertained with Hey Cow. However, the reality though, we're going 80 on the interstate. Those cows are a half mile away. And I don't care how loud Willa yells, her voice is just blowing in the wind, right? So they started counting points for the cows that were already looking at them before they yelled, hey cow, right? That's what you've got to do. But isn't that how it feels often? Like, man, my voice is just blowing in the wind. My investment is blowing in the wind. Does what I'm doing actually matter Am I investing my life in a way that has significance? And that's the door we're using as an entryway into the book of Nehemiah. As we see one who personifies for us the wisdom literature of investing life in something that is not fleeting, that is not haphazard, that is not temporal, but something that has eternal significance, a mission worth giving your life to. Now, certainly, from a street-level view, the book of Nehemiah is a story of a group of people who are rebuilding physical walls around the city of Jerusalem and the temple. But in a very real way, when we get up to kind of 3D perspective, this is the story of God rebuilding the spiritual fortunes of his people. In fact, it's the story of God's faithfulness to keep his covenant promises, to do what he said he would do, which is be the God of these people, that they would, be, they would submit under his tender love and care. And though the story in the Old Testament spirals out of control, it seems, the story of the book of Nehemiah is of God's faithfulness to begin the work of rebuilding the fortunes of these people, a work that is going to be short-lived, a work that is going to await a further builder, the one, Jesus Christ, who would, not ironically, not rebuild a wall, but destroy a wall, the wall that divides, the wall of hostility that divides vertically fallen sinners from God and from one another. This work would await the one, the person of Jesus Christ, and Nehemiah's life, his mission, his investment would point forward to this coming one. It would be a picture of the rebuilding, the restoration that Jesus Christ would ultimately bring. And isn't that, though we live on the other side of Jesus' first coming, 
Isn't that what we're seeking to do as well? Like on our best days, as God's people, we're seeking to live the kind of lives that serve as signposts to point to another one, the one Jesus Christ, the one that we believe will return one day and put everything back together again. So as we give of ourselves to invest our lives in this rebuilding restoration work, we're pointing to Christ just as Nehemiah did. And last week, as we looked at the first chapter of the book of Nehemiah, we saw one who heard of the implications of sin in his homeland in Jerusalem, whose heart was broken for that, and who resolved to do something. And we asked the question of ourselves, where is your heart broken over sin and its implications? What does God want in that area And where does God have you right now? And we, again, as a front door into Nehemiah, pressed us to allow those questions to force us to analyze our lives and say, are we playing hey cow or are we investing in something that actually matters? This week we'll continue that story in Nehemiah chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. Nehemiah 2, beginning in verse 1. In the month of Nisan... In the twentieth year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and I gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, Why is your face sad, seeing that you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of heart. Now let's pause right there and make a couple of comments. At this point, we fast-forwarded the story about four months. Okay, these calendar dates that don't mean anything to us as English readers. We're about four months ahead of when Nehemiah has first heard the news from his brother that things are not right back in the homeland. And during this time, we would assume, based on chapter 1, verses 4 to the end of the chapter, that Nehemiah has been prayerfully considering, well, what am I going to do about this news that I have heard? Many suggest this month is kind of the kickoff to the new year and the ancient calendar. So many suggest that this is a time when the king would be predisposed to be gracious, to be generous to people and their request. And so four months after hearing the news, prayerfully considering his action, we see Nehemiah actually begin to do something. He's told us already at the end of chapter 1 that he's positioned to do something. He's cupbearer to the king. He's the one who is in relationship with the king, who mediates his food and his drink, makes sure that nothing is wrong with it. And he's in, in in chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, we see that he's in relational proximity to the king such that he kind of knows when his mood's out of whack, right? He can notice, hey, you're not sick, but you're real sad. You've got some relational proximity to someone to be able to see that and to pick up on it. And it's here told that Nehemiah has not been sad in the king's presence before. So this stands out. Now, why, why don't you... Why don't, don't you want to be sad in the king's presence before? Well, there's perhaps a lot of reasons. This is probably a pretty good gig for Nehemiah, one would think, right? I mean, he's cupbearer to the king, living in the palace. He's eating the king's food and drink. Who wants a pouty-mouthed cupbearer, right? I don't want somebody sauntering into my presence every day and pouting. It's easy. He's easily replaceable. 
Let's find somebody else to do this gig. If you're going to come in here and pout and tell me your problems every day, I'll find somebody who can smile, right? Who can be kind. So Nehemiah is attempted to put on his best, carry himself well, to be positively predisposed to the king and to do what he would desire. And then, in the end of verse 2, we read that he was very much afraid. The kings noticed his sadness, but it seems that this noticing of sadness is intentional by Nehemiah. He's, he's carrying himself in such a way that would provoke a question, like, what's, what's wrong? So I would suggest that this fear that he's pointing to is perhaps motivated toward what he knows he's getting ready to ask the king. He's very much afraid, and he says in verse 3, But the king lived forever. Why should not my face be sad? When the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Question. So he says to the king, why shouldn't I? And this question then pushes us back into the story of the people of God throughout the Old Testament. He holds up before this king the story of where God has his people. Now last week, we had to move through this fairly quickly as we began the series, but let's make sure we're all oriented to what's happening in our Bibles at this point in history. We know that as we get out of or get into the first and seconds of our Bibles, first and second Samuel, first and second Kings, that the story of the people of God is one of God leading them miraculously out of slavery in Egypt, promising to give them the land, and the people of God settle in this good land, a land flowing with milk and honey. But if you've read the first and seconds, you know it's a little bit like watching an episode of When Animals Attack, right? It's like cringeworthy, because you just know something's getting ready to happen. The people make a mess of God's grace in almost every way. They flaunt their disobedience. They intermarry with the pagan people of the nations. They blatantly worship their gods. And God says, I'm not going to have my people who are wearing my name profane my name in that way in the land. And so writing around that time, near the end of 2 Kings, we meet some, some prophets, particularly Jeremiah. Turn there. Now this is where it gets a bit confusing because you're going to turn forward in your Bible, but you're going to turn backward chronologically. Okay, So turn forward to the book of Jeremiah one of the prophets, to Jeremiah 29. Jeremiah 29, writing around the end of 2 Kings, which comes earlier in your Bible, as the spiritual fate of the people of God is unraveling, and the people are being threatened by these foreign nations who are going to kick them out of the land, Jeremiah writes, picturing a coming day, Jeremiah 29, Let's begin reading in verse 10. Jeremiah 29, verse 10. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for your evil, to give you a future and a hope. 
Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will hear you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. I will be found by you, declares the Lord. And I will restore your fortunes, gather you from the nations, and all the places where I've driven you, declares the Lord. And I will bring you back to this place from which I sent you in exile. So, Donnie alluded to in sermons previously, if there was like an eye black verse for the nation of Israel, it's this one, right? Uh, It's the promise of God that he's going to restore their fortunes after the promise of the judgment of God. Jeremiah writing before the Babylonians come and exile or kick out the people of God from the land says in astounding sovereign fulfillment from God. He says, something's going to happen. Babylonians are going to come. They're going to kick you out of the land. When 70 years are fulfilled, I'm going to bring you back from that land and restore your fortunes here in this place. And this is exactly what happens. King Nebuchadnezzar, the leader of the nation of Babylon, pagan empire, kind of personifying waywardness, rebellion from God, comes in in three subsequent waves to capture, to take the people of God. The most significant and the last of those third, happening in 587 BC. Now remember, before Jesus, we're counting backwards time-wise. So about 600 years before the time of Jesus, we see Nebuchadnezzar come into the southern kingdom. He crushes them, and he takes into captivity the third wave of Israelites who will be kicked off their land and exiled into pagan captivity. About 20 years before that last wave, he comes and he takes some people, one of which is Daniel, the leader, the prophet that our kids studied about in Vacation Bible School this week, right around 600 BC, Daniel gets taken to Babylon, and there he lives out the stories that our kids learned, and many of you may have learned on flannel graph boards as children, right? This happens right around the time that we're kind of walking through in the nation of people of God. And Daniel, in Daniel chapter 5, tells us about a switch that happens that's important for understanding the book of Nehemiah. In Daniel chapter 5, we read that the nation of Persia comes and crushes Babylon, okay? It's important because the kings we're going to meet in the book of Nehemiah are actually Persian kings, they're not Babylonian kings. So Babylon crushes Israel, takes them into captivity, then Persia crushes Babylon, which is a bit like telling, right? I mean, short-lived life of empires and nations, one crushes the other. So in 539 BC, roughly 70 years after the nation, the final verdict from Nebuchadnezzar and taking the people into captivity, the Persian Empire crushes the Babylonian Empire and Persian kings take the throne. Now, why is this important? Because Persian kings' foreign policy is different than the Babylonian kings that were before them. They have a different set of logic on how they should relate to those who are captors, to those who they're holding in exile in their land. Rather than keeping them in their land and under subjugation, the Persian rulers say, here's what we'll do. Let's send them back to their lands... Let them start to rebuild, worship their gods in their way, do what they want to. This is better economically for us. It's better population control for us. 
But what we don't see, at least from a human perspective, is God's sovereign orchestration of this. For, for example, turn with me to Isaiah chapter 44. Isaiah chapter 44. We're still, though again, we're on the right side of the stories that we're looking at. We're preceding them chronologically. So these prophets are writing during this time that I'm describing for you. Isaiah is writing here in Isaiah 44 about 175 years before all this stuff happens, before Persia takes over. And he says about a dude we're going to meet in just a minute, in Isaiah 44, verse 28, he's talking about the coming spiritual fortunes of the people of God, and notice this, verse 28, who says of, and then this is astounding, He calls dude by name. 175 years before this Persian king, who's ultimately going to orchestrate some of the things that we're going to see in the scriptures, Isaiah says, I mean, think about making a pick 175 years ago. I can't pick Clemson's football record this season, right? This is supernatural insight from God to his prophet. He says, there's going to be one who's going to come, Cyrus, He's going to be my shepherd. He shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord, I'm into chapter 45 now, to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. So again, we read chronologically prior to the episodes that we're describing, God say, I'm going to use this pagan king, this Persian king, to restore the fortunes of my people. Now, what I want you to do is flip back to the book of Ezra. Okay, I know we're doing a little Bible drill this morning. And if you feel clumsy handling the scriptures in this way, just recognize you're in good company. It's okay. Like, don't feel awkward or clumsy or table of contents. That's fine. We're all in good company. We're wanting to grow in our understanding of the Lord and his ways. So don't be embarrassed if this is new to you. The book of Ezra, up until about 500 years ago, Ezra and Nehemiah were actually one book, telling the same story around the same time. And in Ezra chapter 1, we read of this coming promise from Isaiah. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, so I'm in Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Still hear some pages rattling, so I'll give you a second to catch up. In Ezra chapter 1, verse 1, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. Heard that before, right? He's saying this is what I just said was going to happen, not just said, but what I said in Jeremiah 29, 10 through 13, Cyrus is embodying this. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom, and he put it in writing. So the compiler, there's not really an author of Ezra and Nehemiah. The book is uh, compilation of Nehemiah, some autobiographical journals, some edicts that are written during that time, somebody that's kind of curating various forms of content here. 
But whoever's putting this, packaging this together is clear in verse 1. Why is this happening? Because the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. Yeah, from a human perspective, we might say economically or just practically, this move made sense. But this is the outworking of Proverbs 21.1. The heart of the king is like streams of water in the hand of God. He makes it go wherever he pleases. So how is God going to orchestrate this random Mary and Joseph fulfilling the promise of the location of the birth of Jesus Christ? He's going to stir up the heart of Caesar Augustus to issue a decree that a census should be taken. And thus, from a human perspective, Joseph has to go back to his homeland. But from a sovereign perspective, from a supernatural perspective, this is just the outworking of God stirring up the hand of whomever he wants. So this is what he did. And then notice these words in verse 2 of Ezra 1. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah, Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him. And let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers and the houses of Judah and Benjamin and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go and rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. A stunningly God-centric proclamation, right? From this Persian king, God stirs up his heart and sends the people back to rebuild Jerusalem. And the people go. Again, we're prior to the story in Ezra and Nehemiah. But at this point, roughly a third of the people who are in captivity, scholars estimate there's about 150,000 Jews, Israelites, in captivity in Babylon, and 49,000 of them return. Zerubbabel and Joshua lead the people of God and these 49,000 back to begin the work of rebuilding their first task is to rebuild the temple. You may know this story because the prophet Zechariah and Haggai write around this time. Because these people go back and they start to rebuild the temple, they face a little bit of opposition, and what do they do? They leave the foundation of the temple established and they go run off, and the prophet Haggai says in Haggai chapter 1, they go off and start building their own paneled houses while the temple of God lies in ruins. For 20 years, the work on the temple just stops. There's a foundation in place. There's some Jews back in the land, but the work stops. And for the next decades, the work continues to stop up until 458 B.C., So we're about 130 years after the people have been taken in captivity in these foreign lands and the Lord stirs up the spirit once again of the kings, the leaders of that day to send first Ezra back and then 13 years later 
to send Nehemiah back to begin the work of rebuilding the temple and the walls. During that intervening time, stories like the book of Esther take place. And during that time, and this is helpful orientation for us, the books of First and Second Chronicles are written. You ever wonder when you get to that, that first and second, you're like, this is wacky. They're retelling every story I just read. Well, the reason it's wacky and they're retelling the stories is because they fast-forwarded several generations. So the chronicle, the compiler, recast those stories for the people who were returning back to the land to remind them, this is where you came from. In case you've forgotten who God is, this is what happened. In case you've forgotten why you're in the situation you are, remember these stories. These stories are told among the people who are, led by Ezra and Nehemiah, returning back to the land. Now, back to Nehemiah chapter 2. He says, this is what's happened. My city, place of my father's graves, lies in ruins, gates destroyed by fire. Verse 4. Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven, and I said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has found favor in your sight, send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. Right. So you can, you can imagine. This has been tried before. People have asked. The Lord stirred the king's spirit. And now it's go time. Nehemiah, at this point, who is he to make such an ask? He's a total unknown. I mean, even jump on Wikipedia after the sermon, of course, because you wouldn't do it during the sermon. But jump on Wikipedia, and scholars or whoever writes on Wikipedia, they're, they're not going to say anything about Nehemiah before this. No, he's just, he's the compared to the king. He's not David. He's not promised that he's going to do this. He's not Solomon. He's just a cupbearer who hears that things aren't right. And the king says, you're sad. What's going on? Homeboy says things aren't right back home. And he turns up the temperature again and says, what are you asking? Now it's go time. I've been on the end of raising funds for a number of nonprofits and churches in my history and gone to some trainings for them. They'll tell you, you know, you're sitting down with somebody or you're calling them and asking them to give so that the work can go forward. And they're like, you want to imagine the number of times people just fall apart when somebody answers the phone, right? Or somebody's sitting on the other side and you've told them the story of your church plan or your missionary trip or whatever you're going on. And they say, so what do you need? Right? It's there. It's in that moment that you see the outworking of, do I actually have courage to trust God to do what he's pressed on me to do? And then the biblical author tells us, perhaps Nehemiah writing this in his journal, that he prayed to the God of heaven. Now, we know, we've got to assume, this is, like, this is the, the, the quick, oh God, help me prayer. Now, this prayer is predicated on four months of prayer. Our boy hasn't been prayerless. He hasn't been naive in walking to this. But he postures himself, himself again, submissively to God, and he, said, he prays to the God of heaven. And then, if it pleases the king... If your servants found favor in your sight, again, we could preach or press on a sermon here related to 
He's obviously been a good worker. He's built some trustworthiness. He's served even the pagan king well to posture him to even make this ask. Then send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. And then verse 6, the king said to me, I find this parenthesis funny, the queen sitting beside him, like, is she influencing this decision? Is the writer kind of know, actually, it's the queen that makes the call? Like, she's right there kind of elbowing hubby, all right? You're going to do this. You're going to listen to what bro asks of you. I don't know why the parentheses is there. We could guess, but it's not helpful. How long will you be gone, and when will you return? Now, we're not told the answer to this question. In Nehemiah 5, we're going to find out by around that point, he's been there for 12 years (laughs) working to rebuild, rebuild the wall. Now, that's probably not what he asked for then, right? But we know what he asked for was more than, hey, man, I need to go do like four days of disaster relief with the Red Cross, okay? This is a big deal. He's saying, I want to lead God's people back to the land to rebuild the temple, and I'm going to lead this thing. It's a big request. It's a bold ask. And the king said, I mean, this is the place you're like, oh, cringing. What's he going to say? Is he going to let me go? And the king keeps turning it up. I mean, you see the Lord's orchestrating all of this. If it pleases the king... I'm sorry, uh, so it pleased the king to send me when I'd given him a time. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me to the governors of the province beyond the river, that they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple, for the wall of the city, and for the house that I shall occupy. Now, this is, this is interesting because it is clear in the four months that have led up to this big ask, our boy Nehemiah has been doing some work. He knows what he's going to need. He knows who, who he's going to need letters from. He knows the path that he's going to take to get the people back. Often we posture prayer as an enemy to good planning. You either pray or you plan. Nehemiah's doing both. He's a man of deep prayer, but he's also a man who's an actionable leader because he has a plan. So when the king, when the Lord stirs the king's heart to respond, he's not sitting there saying, I need a couple of weeks. I got to go, I got to go back home, kind of work up a plan. I'll present my business plan to you here. Give me a month and I'll get this thing together. He is dependent on the Lord, trusting in the Lord, knowing that the Lord's going to act, prayerful, and he walks in with a clear plan so that when the Lord acts on the king's heart, he's able to lean into that thing and say, here's what I want to do. And then the last, verse 8, the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. And here, I think, is the press for us this morning. This is Nehemiah makes explicit what has been assumed all along in the chapters leading up. Remember back in chapter 1, he asked God to grant him success in the endeavors that he is about to pursue. 
specifically chapter 2. Of the words that we've read thus far, 50% of them have been prayer to God. He has asked that God would grant success. He has prayed consistently. And here in the text, he kind of bubbles up to the surface. Why? Why did this all happen? Four. One of these turning points, kind of like but God in Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. Four. Why? The good hand of my God was upon me. Nehemiah recognizes it's not his ingenuity, it's not his planning, it's not any of that. The reason that he is able to step in to the mission that God has for him is because the power of the good hand of God. Now, we then have to ask the question, what is the good hand of God capable of? Okay, I'm a dad of four. I love my kids. I will lean into any problem any pressure, if there is ever a scene in their lives that I am capable of intervening and doing something, I am postured to lean in and support my kids as best I can. But at the end of the day, my kids know that the strong arm of Matt is pretty limited, right? I mean, I want them to see me as a dad who can lean in and help and support, but the strong arm of Matt only goes so far. Not so with the mighty hand. This is how the Old Testament writers are going to capture The mighty hand and the outstretched arm of God. What's he capable of? What's he capable of? Read the stories throughout the Old Testament. He's capable of breaking his people free from slavery. He's capable of whittling down the army to fight these oppressors in the land with just a few fledgling men. He's capable of overcoming the Goliaths in the land with a little shepherd boy like David. The mighty hand of God is not limited at all. So when, they, when, when Nehemiah says, I'm doing this because the good hand of God is for me, that then gives bold confidence to step out in faith, to lean into risk, knowing that I am supported, empowered by the good hand of God. Perhaps the question isn't, is this too big for God, but rather, is this big enough for God? Or maybe we frame it a different way. Are you living the kind of life that demands the good hand of God showing up? If not, then I think it is due cause for us to assess what do I actually believe about the nature and character of this God I stand to worship. If I believe the good hand of God is powerful, then I'll step into pretty much anything. Now we're often predisposed to answer that question, well, yes, I live as if the good hand of God is important because I'm suffering or I don't have this thing happening more reactively. And certainly there are times and there are seasons when the good hand of God is going to show up. But where I'm trying to press us this morning is in the area of mission. 
It's in the area of courage. It's in the area of leaning into brokenness. It's not in the area of survival. Okay? Are there times when you need the good hand of God just to survive? Absolutely. But that's not getting out of bed every morning. That's not going to propel 70 years of life. You need the kind of life mission that demands the good hand of God to show up. What a statement at the end of one's life to be able to say, I lived as if the good hand of God was powerful. My life demonstrated the power of the good hand of God. Is that true of you this morning? Is that true of you this morning? If we want to live the kind of lives that are submissive to a strong arm, mighty hand, outstretched arm, a powerful God, may we be the kind of people that bend in to those areas. There's really good news in the scriptures throughout. For example, in the Great Commission, Jesus tells us that as we go, what? I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. So here, Christian, what you don't have to worry about this morning is whether the mighty hand and the outstretched arm of God is with you. It is. The question for us is, are we living like it matters? Let me ask you just to prayerfully and reflectively still yourself um, For me, that happens best if I close my eyes. Doesn't necessarily have to for you. But however you reflectively posture yourself to reflect on that question, am I living the kind of life that requires the strong hand of God? If you're here this morning and you don't have saving relationship with Jesus, I can answer that question for you. The answer is no. And what God is calling you to this morning is to bow your knee in repentance, admitting that you're playing hey cow with life, and turn the orientation of your heart Godward. This morning there'll be pastors in the back and up here in the front that would love to talk to you if you feel like you're wasting your life and you're unsure about your relationship with God. For those who have firm conviction, that they know the God who is mighty, who is strong, would we reflect this morning on the mission of our lives, the perfect fulfillment, the way God orchestrates human history, his strength, his power, his might has been evidenced through thousands of years of biblical history. And ask, are we submitting our lives in that? And if not, would we repent of the futile ways that we tend to drift and we would, would we ask God, by the power of his spirit, to orient our hearts to something greater?